Ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, people of all ages, welcome back to the Sticky Floors podcast. I am one of your hosts, CJ. I am joined by my main man, Mr. Will. Tonight, we are talking about the Spike Lee classic, Bamboozled. So this is, uh, this is I'm, I'm, I'm not even going to hold you here. I'm not burying the lead. This is one of my favorite movies <laughs> of all time. So um, we're going to spend some time with this. Uh, we're going to try to do it justice. It's a lot of material here. And in many ways, this is a great segue or great um, building block on this show that we did last week on Hollywood Shuffle. So if you have not watched or listened to the Hollywood Shuffle, podcast, which was what we did last week, um, you may want to check that out because a lot of what we say is going to build on that. And so with that said, I'm going to kick it over to my man, Mr. Will, to give a quick intro for what the movie is all about. Then we're going to dive in. Yeah, Thanks a lot, CJ. And uh, hello, everyone. Uh, the title itself, uh, Bamboozled, is actually borrowed from a quote by Malcolm X, El Haj Malik Shabazz, uh, in which he states, You've been hoodwinked, you've been had, you've been took, you've been led astray, run amok, you've been bamboozled. Um, this uh, satire uh, actually is a very modernized television minstrel show. Um, shout out to Little Brother in their classic album, The Minstrel Show. Um, this features a predominantly black cast, uh, although there are some... Uh, uh, individuals of European descent sprinkled amongst the cast. Um, but the predominant character in this show is Blackface himself. Um, mm. These individuals actually break down uh, from a historical narrative how Blackface originated, uh, what uh, ingredients, if you will, were utilized in presenting themselves as uh, exaggerated versions of Africans. Um, this uh, film, this uh, narrative is a very uh, in-your-face presentation of the resulting violence and fallout from the show's success. Uh, the film, again, takes a satirical approach, uh, commenting on the way that movies and television in particular use and misuse the images and portrayals of black people, especially those that reside in the United States. Yep. Thank you very much for that breakdown, Mr. Will. And, you know, there's, there's two things that you said there that really stand out for me right away. One is the idea of blackface being put as the, as a main character in and of itself, which is very true. And I, I actually really didn't think about it that way until you just said it. And then the other part is the care that was put in to educate people about mm -hmm. what blackface actually is. And right. you know, this is the first this is the first Spike Lee movie that we've done, right? And um, as I said before, this is one of my favorites. One of the things that I've always appreciated about Spike Lee movies is that I've always felt that he tells stories that are fundamentally influenced by the fact that the main characters are black. And that if you if the main characters were not black, the story wouldn't actually work and it wouldn't work the same way because the story is so rooted in certain aspects of black culture. So, you mm -hmm. know, whether that's 
the the jazz scene that's as a as a part of um dang i just forgot it as i was just thinking about it um with wesley snipes and, and denzel washington oh yeah yeah in mo better blues mo better blues right yeah whether it's mo better blues whether it's a movie like bamboozled um you know either a movie like he got game they're so mm-hmm. rooted very much in this dynamic of because the characters are black these stories are playing out that way because they're keeping very very close to black culture and this movie does that as well. And I really appreciate how intentional Spike Lee is in this movie of trying to make sure that the audience leaves learning something in addition mm-hmm. to being entertained to the extent that you can be entertained. Because as you said, this movie is uh, it's abrasive and it's hard and it's done intentionally. Right. Well, piggybacking off of what you just mentioned with respect to uh Spike Lee's main characters being uh, black uh, actors and actresses. Uh, it it reminds me of this uh, breakdown that Denzel was giving to um, several uh, media members in respect to his directorial uh, uh, directorial uh, presentation of Fences. He says, uh, and I'm going to paraphrase. He says something to the effect of uh, Scorsese does uh, Goodfellas. And he says, uh, Spielberg does um, Schindler's List. He says, uh, you know, Scorsese could have done a good job or made a good movie if he was directing Schindler's List and vice versa with Spielberg. He could have done the same with Goodfellas. He says, but it's bigger than that. It's a cultural thing. Mm -hmm. So when I'm doing a movie or when any uh, director is doing a movie where the lead actors are black, it's about culture. It's not about race. You know, there's something about a hot comb that all of us, and he's speaking about the, the cast members who are black, that we can speak to. We know that sensation when it burns, the smell, mm-hmm. the, the process. Yep. You know, not, not many other cultures can do that. So in reference to Spike, you know, being a, a, a proud uh, black director, you know, he's from a long lineage, whether it be uh, his own peer group with uh, Mario Van Peebles or his father Melvin or even before him with Oscar Michaud. And for those that don't know about him, um, do some research. Uh, do recognize, though, that even though the Oscars themselves are an award, there's no historical evidence that um, kind of means that, that the Oscars were named after him, but it's a nice coincidence. Um, the fact is, is that you know, these things are not done by happenstance. These are done deliberately. Yeah, absolutely. And and clearly Spike Lee is a is a, um an educated person and a person that studies the history of film and is very intentional about mm-hmm. creating film and very intentional about creating a very unique style to film, right? And this mm-hmm. film starts with the introduction of the word satire, right? And so just sort of quickly, satire is what's kind of linking this story together. And he's mm-hmm. trying to create his his main character, Pierre Delacroix, which we're gonna, we have to talk about Pierre Delacroix in a second here, um, mm. is telling you from the very beginning that what satire is. And he's taking you through a story, which only in the end you realize is his last final thoughts about his life. Although it seems like he's telling it to you as if he's moving it along to some sort of um, seems like happy ending. So let's talk a little bit about the, my main man, Peerless Dolphin. 
So, so, th- so one of the things that I, I really appreciate about this movie is that it does not make you, it doesn't give you all the answers for who Peerless is, right? It lets you kind of figure that out over the course of the movie, not only from where he starts, but also from where he ends up. And there's certain characters that come in and remind him and in effect tell you who he really is. So you don't even find out till maybe 40 minutes into the movie that his name is actually Peerless and not Pierre. And that his name is actually Dolphin instead of Delacroix, right? And so what what do you what do you think like when you're when you're thinking about the character of of Peerless Dolphin or Pierre Delacroix, what is it that steps that stands out for you? Well, for me, as always, I go to the etymology of the name or the word or whatever it is that we're talking about. So definition of peerless um, is unequaled, unrivaled, without flaws, another definition. Um, So that's his first name. You also got to take the word, the root word itself, meaning peer of your group, uh, members of your group, rather, uh, your, your, your pals, your buddies, whatever have you, or contemporaries. Uh, less obviously the the suffix meaning not having without zero zilch not a Nathan, um, and then his last name, which is biblical, and um, it speaks to the first mentioning in the Hebrew Bible in Genesis, um, the connection with the history of Joseph as the place in which the sons of Jacob, or also known as Israel, uh, had moved their sheep, and at the suggestion of Judah, the brothers sold Joseph to the uh, Ishmaelite uh, merchants. Uh, that's Genesis thirty-seven seventeen. Uh, and then even if you break down the word even further, it's uh, two wells, double schisms, uh, edicts, decrees, laws, customs, double facts, double feasts. So you're dealing with the duality. Mm-hmm. I think just that alone epitomizes who he is. Two names, two different faces, two different voices, two different upbringings. Parents aren't together. So there's a schism there. Um, him having good intentions in the beginning of the movie speaks to the fact of, you know, he he, he does have a sense of self. He does have um, a, a moral compass. And he even tells you that the reason why they even indulge in this endeavor of curating this movie, excuse me, this television show, is the fact that he's going to point out the ridiculousness and that it's not even going to get even mm-hmm. a pilot. They're going to see like, you know what, this is a wake up call for white America to say, yo, we're, we're, we don't know who these people are. Um, matter of fact, they, even in the writing room, there's one Asian and they don't discuss her true ethnicity and she's on the left. That's very deliberate. Um, she's up close and personal, whereas the rest are a mixture of uh, white females and males. And one of them says, I'm from Idaho, <laughs> as you all know. And my only interaction with black people is which good is, time. Which is shocking. And, and mm-hmm. the Jeffersons. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, these things are done deliberately. And be mindful, uh, folks. We're not going to cover everything. CJ has constantly reminded (laughs) me to help my bearings that um, that's not our place. It's for us to give you a brief synopsis, maybe hone in on a few things to bring to your attention, to enlighten you, to give you uh, uh, the encouragement to go out and explore. Maybe not just this movie, but all the movies that are out there for no yeah no question definitely. no question and thank you for that everything you broke down with with peerless because the idea of that the two worlds right because he's living in two worlds right he's trying to fit in to a world that doesn't like him and is not that interested 
you know, he goes through that experience of going, you see him going through the office, trying to say hi to everybody. Nobody says hi to him. Right. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing that tells you that your office does not mess with you. Like going in and saying hi to people that don't say hi back. Right. So he goes, he, right. He goes to, right. And we've, we've all been there. Right. So we know what that's like. He goes through that. And then you also know that because his parents named him peerless, they were intentional about naming him and they, and they both have Mm -hmm. a love for him. His mom calls him, his dad wants to see him. So even though, though they're not together, they are still in his life and he still wants their affirmation because like he had, he, he talks yes. to his mom and obviously his mom roasts him about the show later on, but he cares about what his father mm-hmm. thinks. He cares about his dad. What did, did dad, yeah. did, you know, did uh, June bug, did June bug see the show and what did he think about it? So he's in that world. And yet he also wants the um, approval of his bosses. And he wants the approval of mm-hmm. Dunwitty, who was played by Mac- Michael Rappaport. And he wants to relate to him. And later on, you realize that in some ways he wants to be like Dunwitty. He wants to have Dunwitty's power. Mm-hmm. He wants to have Dunwitty's authority. He wants to have Dunwitty's prestige that comes with who he is. And he becomes, in some ways, over the course of this movie, he becomes exploitative of the black people that he knows the same way Dunwitty has been exploiting him. Yeah. Which is uh very ironic on everything that you touched upon. Uh, and the irony is this, he became the very thing that he was setting out to destroy and to highlight as ridiculous. Um, his opening scenes, when you see him, um, and I think this is, uh, this is uh, something that I, I definitely wanted to touch upon. Um, Shaft, uh, the uh, both versions, the original with Richard Roundtree, Rest in Power, um, as well as the joint uh, that came out with uh, Samuel L. Jackson, both of them mentioned deliberately being too too black for the badge and too blue for mm. the black community, and it's that duality in which uh, Peerless speaks to because when he's outside and he sees Tommy Davidson's character, and he also sees um, and CJ made a good point in the pre-production. Uh, discussion, you know, I don't know why there hasn't been more on-screen appearances oh, he, by Savion. He's Club fantastic. He kills this. it in this. Kills it in this. But um, you know, when he meets the the two of them or sees them again on the street, because that wasn't the first time meeting them, um, they even say to him, you know, like, "Hey, what's going on?" And you could tell in his voice that he's not really comfortable. The over uh, enunciation and pronunciation of his words. Um, and them uh, saying, hey, like, you know, essentially like relax, you know, you know, stop being so stiff, et cetera, et cetera. And then also the thing that I definitely want to drive home is that they continue to talk about his education, mm-hmm. that he's Harvard yeah, ed- educated, that they they intentionally mention how uh, he went mm-hmm. to an Ivy League school. Um, and so when you see him walking through there, you get a sense of code switching but no, that's actually who he is. Like that's his natural speaking voice, et cetera, et cetera, throughout the entire show. Except when his father says, "Yeah, where did you get you that, pick accent, up that accent?" Yep. He calls it an accent. So think about that when you're, uh, you know, going through this movie. You know, what and, and Peerless has this really interesting relationship to the other black people in the movie. So he refers to Sloane mm-hmm. Hopkins, the character played by Jada Pinkett, as his lamb. Right. So he doesn't think about her as mm-hmm. like a person. Right. 
And even the way that he no. treats Man Ray and Womack is also like objects. Like one of the like in the first one of the scenes where he's kind of trying to pitch them on joining the show. And remember, they want all the things. They want the jeans mm-hmm. and they want all this kind of stuff. And then he says, like, mm-hmm. you also need deodorant and you need soap and you need toothpaste. Mm-hmm. And he does it in a way that embarrasses them and it embarrasses them in front of Sloan. And you can even see Jada Pinkett does a great job of showing the emotion of Sloan also being embarrassed for them. And it's so, it's so like, it's Mm -hmm. always meant to show you that even though you get the sense that Pierre or or Peerless grew up with people that did care about him and did have good values that they were trying to instill in him, along the way, he lost some of that. And now he views the Black people around him more like objects than as people. And that's part of what allows him to even conceive of this crazy idea to begin with, because he tells Sloan very upfront that he doesn't want to just quit. He wants to try to get fired because he doesn't want to lose his money and he doesn't want to, he doesn't want to be sued. Mm -hmm. So he's willing to burn up the careers of people, which is Mm -hmm. also part of the reason why he uses people that he views as disposable, like Womack and, and, and Man Ray because he doesn't care about the collateral damage of what happens to them. He just wants to make sure that he's okay. Which is a interesting point that you raised because uh, you had mentioned uh, when you started off the explanation of Man Ray and Womack and their interaction with uh, Dela, um, which Dela. is ironic <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. seen as the group Dela Soul, but, but uh, which is the antithesis mm-hmm. of what they're really about. But um Master Ace and uh, Marco Polo have an album called Richmond Hill, which is ironic enough. Um, And one of the songs in it, Master Ace uh, is uh, talking about basically money issues. And the song is called Jordan Theory. Um, I suggest cats uh, not only peep the album, but that song in particular. And in the song, Ace talks about who, mind you, is also college educated, which is kind of (laughs) like a no-no in rap, um, in hip hop. Um, especially he's old. He checks too many boxes. He's quote unquote old from the golden age, juice crew affiliate. Um, uh, and he's also college educated and he got on when he was young. Um, so nonetheless, I digress. The fact is the story mimics his song, the Jordan theory, because CJ mentioned, you know, they want all the glitz and the glamor. They want the things, but why is that? Well, 50 talks about it too. He says, yo, the presentation I'm giving right now in this interview is that I'm clean. I'm wearing a white shirt. Um, and, you know, where we come from, you know, most of the times people are depicted as being dirty. Hence the fact that he tells, De La, De La tells mm-hmm. those guys, mm-hmm. get some soap, plenty of it, you know, toiletries, et cetera, et cetera. And they notice the stench. Um, but again, these individuals, they live in a condemned place in which there's a full blown out scene in which these people are getting kicked out. Now think about the ridicule and the embarrassment that they have of being homeless and the stigma attached to that. Then compound that with the fact that they're getting kicked out with no opportunity for resources because as you know women and children are offered uh types of social services that men are not hence why there's a larger populace of homeless men than there are of women and children um then you include the fact that you know you have this this thing about you know when i make it i'm Mm -hmm. gonna get this 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 and this and one of the things they talk about is the hill figure. Well, and they don't use hill figure; it's allusion to hill figure. But they say hill n word 
Um, and then they talk about the girls and then they don't necessarily talk about Billy D. Williams uh, uh, commercials. Cult 45, not, yeah. I mean, excuse me, cult 45 or even the or even, you know, the modern version of uh, St. Ives and the countless rappers who endorse those. Um, but you have a baby bottle mm-hmm. slash soda bottle with alcoholic malt liquor that they right. emphasize is a hundred percent. I mean, the, the parallels here, the, the illusions, uh, they're, they're very so much stand out. It's embedded in your head, like a brand. And then on top of it, uh, you have, excuse me, uh, you have the, these two gentlemen where, um, they still are trapped in the ways of homelessness and not having where literally man Ray, um, he puts the tap dance shoes in his back, uh, in the back of his mm-hmm. uh, pants underneath his shirt, rather than just hold them in the box or keep them in the bag. He's so, he's so, uh, been, uh, institutionalized and he wasn't even in prison where his conditioned is conditioned, my brother. And he puts them into the back of his pants. Um, and then you could even fast forward to the fact that, uh, these two gentlemen, um, they buy things such as the high rise apartment, but you got to think about the maintenance and are you going to be able to pay continuously on the increasing rent or the taxes associated with every property that you're purchasing. Um, it's very ironic that, you know, these things aren't gone into detail where they don't have to, but they should be on the top or the forefront. Yeah, and the, and the thing about the details sites. part, um, you know, when I saw this, when I saw this movie for the first time, I saw it on DVD. So I got, I, I got it on DVD. And mm-hmm. one of the things that was really great to me about it was I, the DVD came with the director's commentary. And when you and I and I would suggest that if you really mm. want to get into the deep, deep dive into this movie, even beyond what we can provide here, doing mm. listening to the director's commentary, Spike Lee is so intentional about everything that happens in the movie. So even the scene that you are referencing where Man Ray and Womack have to flee the building that were in that they were in, he he was he said that he intentionally put that in because of how outrageous he thought it was that in New York City at that time under the Giuliani administration, mm-hmm. homeless people were being were being arrested. And you remember like that was a time when they had the um what was it, the broken mm-hmm. windows initiative, where, you know, the idea was that you can stop if you can stop small crime, you can stop it from growing into bigger crime. So if the idea of trespassing, which being in a building that doesn't belong to you or a space was a crime, if you arrested people for that, those people wouldn't become people who become muggers, right? Not that there was any science type of type of scientific correlation between these things. But it was an ideology that permeated through the city at that time and turned it into a place where people were being arrested for all kinds of things. And so he was very intentional about doing that. And like you said, Man Ray walks around with his shoes in his back because as a person, as a homeless person, he doesn't have any place for his stuff to be. So anything that he cares about, he has to keep on his person Mm -hmm. because he can't trust that he can leave it somewhere. So those details, which the movies are very intentional about showing you, are really also very intentional about trying to show you the lifestyle and the background where Womack and Man Ray come from and to convey that they are, um, they're vulnerable to this creation idea that, that De La Croix has that's really designed to exploit them. And, and he's, and you know, even as he says, you get more money. Like he doesn't care about the money part because he knows what he's really extracting from them is so much more valuable than the money he's going to pay them. Well, you hit a you hit the nail right upon the head, and you brought up some excellent points. You're talking about causality and correlation. You're talking about um, these individuals because what homelessness actually signifies is the fact that, like you said, 
you don't have a storage facility or a place to call home. There is a difference between a house and a home, a living structure, and also a residency. Um, I think something else that you also highlighted is the fact that during that Giuliani era, Giuliani mm-hmm. era, yep. um, you know, there was the stop and frisk. Uh, there were all these uh, enforcement of though there are laws on the books. There's a reason why, and it harkens back to the slave period. I mean, police officers, cops, they're nothing more than overseers, hence the reason why they became what they are. Forget the fact that they used to wear tin stars made out of cups, and that's why they're called coppers, because some of those things were made out of copper. Um, The fact is, is that these individuals were trying to enforce uh, these uh, slave uh, reinforcement laws where they were trying to uh, capture escaped slaves, and thus the reason why you have these police officers. And then once uh, so-called freedom was granted, you had the Jim Crow laws, which were nothing more than enforcement of soliciting, which was really, these people didn't have anywhere to go. Mm -hmm. So this movie is a parallel, especially those particular aspects of that uh, Jim Crow period in which you had the carpetbaggers coming down and trying to so-called elevate uh, individuals, black people in particular, who are just getting out of uh, slavery. And thus you have why a lot of predominantly all black colleges were started by these so-called affluent carpetbaggers, Europeans from the Northeast or from the North. Um, I think the thing that we want to get into, though, uh, at least I do, is uh, the brilliant cast um, who actually bring these 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 characters to life. So we already talked about Damon Wayans, uh, and which is really weird because mm-hmm. we all picture him as like just comedic uh, comedy roles. You know, this is a very uh, in-depth drama, serious, you know, role that he, mm-hmm. I, I feel that he did. Yeah, you he did you a don't see him. Stand up job. You don't see him as um, Damon Wayans. Uh, and then you also have, the and I think that's, that's evidence that he's doing no, a good job. No, even though he uses, yeah, even though he uses the same voice that he's mm-hmm. used when he tries to mimic or mock, uh, the so-called white voice in in living color. Um, but I digress. Then we already touched upon briefly uh, Savion Glover, for those who don't know. Uh, started off as a child, I want to say eight or nine, uh, in the spotlight, even though he'd probably been dancing since forever. Uh, tap dancing in particular uh, under um, uh, Gregory Hines, rest in power, um, and then going on to beco- uh, to get out from underneath his shadow. Um Tommy Davidson. CJ mentioned Tommy Davis Jr. Uh, excuse me, Tommy Davidson. Uh, great, great in this role, complimentary to uh, Savion Glover's character. Um, we got Michael Rappaport, who, you know, like I told CJ, <laughs> I can't help but see him higher as learning. Remy. Yep. Ever since, ever since higher learning, yeah. All mm-hmm. I see is him saying, "I'll make you my monkey, Malik." And so in this movie, now Remy didn't kill himself; he became an executive. And he thinks that he knows black people, a la Vlad TV, um, better than black people do. Shout out to uh, um, all the individuals who do uh, a stand-up job in this movie, such as Mostef, uh, Thomas Jefferson Bird, rest in power, um, who is uh, Honeycutt. And CJ will probably get into that a little bit later, but an excellent portrayal as the jest- the court jester, um, the uh, uh, funny guy, uh, you name it anything in that vein. Um, also got to remember, uh, rest in power to Paul Mooney, who is also De La's father, who is also portraying mm-hmm. uh, uh, remnants of himself, actually. Uh, it's almost autobiographical. Um, we also got to give a shout out to the rappers in this joint, besides Mostef, MC Search, who's 116th, Cannabis, um, who's Mo Black, 
Charlie Baltimore, who is um, uh, what's her name? Yes, uh, yes, smooth black. Is yep. she smooth black in this joint? I think she's smooth black. Um, uh, and also, last but definitely not least, <laughs> the Roots, who play the Alabama Porch Monkey. Shout out to Nas for ridiculing them when they were doing the Jay Z joint, calling them Alabama Porch Monkeys. No, and that's not coincidental. And then also you have uh, Al Sharpton and Rustin Power, Johnny Cochran, who portrayed themselves in the uh, uh, almost uh, protest story. The protest uh, scene, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, that, that grace out of it. protest scene, yeah. So definitely, yeah, definitely got to give credence to all these actors. And even a shout out to Jada Pinkett, as CJ mentioned before, uh, excuse me, Jada Pinkett Smith. And this is pre uh, craziness, uh, trying to embarrass Will Smith um, when she was still a, a legitimate actress. Uh, definitely got to give a shout out to the cast. Yeah, it's a it's a great cast, and the movie starts. I would say it starts really with the the uh, the pitch meeting for the show. So mm-hmm. Delacroix pitches the show, and he tells Man Ray that Man Ray is going to be called Mantan, and mm-hmm. and Womack that he's going to be called Sleepin' Eat, and mm-hmm. then they take the and now. In the beginning, the idea is like, okay, I'm going to make this show. It's going to be so racist, so offensive. They're going to kick it, kick me off the air. People are going to realize, the, the network will realize that people don't actually want to see these derogatory depictions of Black people. And mm-hmm. I will be blamed for creating this, and then I'll be fired. Mm-hmm. But the best laid plans of mice and men rarely go the direction you think they're going to. And mm-hmm. so instead, what happens is the show is debuts and it is a wild success, right? And there's there's one little note that I have to say here, and this goes back to the director's commentary too. When you watch the movie, the first show that they tape, the audience reaction is the real people's reaction to the show. Because Spike Lee says that they didn't, they had, they had extras come in and they told them they were going to be a part of a show and a part of a movie for a show, but they didn't tell them what it was going to be. So they didn't know that they were going to see people coming out in blackface doing the skits that they were. So when you're watching it, you're watching the people's real reaction to seeing blackface in, two, in like 1999, 2000, and being like, what the hell is this, right? And if mm-hmm. you watch, the, the white people are looking at the black people trying to figure out if it's okay to laugh or not. Black people are looking mm-hmm. at each other. And there's some black people that are laughing hysterically. Other people are offended. You might even see somebody get up and walk out. But that's the real mm-hmm. reaction of people in watching it. Now, that being said, the show, blow, the show blows up. And now all of a sudden, De La Croix is getting all these accolades. Man Ray and, and, uh, Man Ray and Womack are getting money. And they are on top, right? And this gets to something that we talked about before that I just want to spend a, little, a few minutes on. The idea of how entertainment becomes a commodity. Because one of the things that happens in this is that as soon as the, the show blows up, all of a sudden they're on all the magazine covers. People are buying the masks to wear like for Halloween. There's this merchandising aspect that comes along with the success of the show. And there's this idea that when something is popular, whatever the venue is, people don't want to just enjoy it. At some point, they want to buy something for it, Right. And you see this play out, you know, like we saw this growing up, like, you know, Mike, Michael Jordan sold, how many, how many Nikes did Michael Jordan sell? You know, how many, how many Big Macs did Michael Jordan sell? Or, you know, like all these athletes now, the Super Bowl was yesterday. How many, how many superstars sold you products, whether that was Dunkin' Donuts mm. or whatever, 
like we identify when we identify when this society identifies with a celebrity or something that we like, we also want to buy something for it. And it becomes like an interchange of commodity. And once that happens, it just envelops everything. And then everything becomes about the dollars. So when you were talking about the part with Man Ray, who goes from being homeless to living in a sky rise apartment, you know, he doesn't even care about where the money is going. He just assumes he's always going to have the money. He's going to handle his mm -hmm. business. And he even has big posters of himself and Womack in his house. Mm -hmm. And so it's just, it's just interesting. Like that point, and I really think this is like that, that, um, that commercialism side is the modern day, the modern day build from what we saw in a movie like Hollywood shuffle, which never, mm. which never really allowed maybe with the exception of Mr. Batty, but for the most part, a lot of the people that were in those movies or in those roles, they were just kind of trying to survive. And they felt like they had to sell out to try to survive, but it was really like just to kind of pay their bills. Whereas now you're seeing with Mantan and Sleep and Eat, they've sold out to the highest level. And as a result, they are getting all the money that they possibly can and they possibly can want. Well, so that's the other thing too that I find so interesting. Um, there's a scene in Mo Better Blues, and CJ and I talked about this again in the pre-production meeting with Wesley Snipes' character and Denzel's character interacting, and it's also found on the roots. Uh, things fall apart uh, in the intro, where Wesley Snipes and Denzel have a discourse about mainstream popular music crossing. Uh, excuse me, uh, underground, if you will, blues, jazz crossing over and becoming pop music. Um, Denzel says essentially that there's more representation of other people outside of the black community uh, sponsoring, endorsing, listening to uh, jazz music, which was founded by black people. Mm -hmm. um, and then in turn, Wesley says, essentially, that's BS. You know, if you played what they wanted, the people would come. And that same conversation was essentially the hallmark of when EPMD was talking about crossing over, sellouts, you know, staying underground, don't pop. Whereas uh, you would hear in, say, like the 60s with all of the doo-wop groups, whether it be the Four Tops, the Temptations, uh, all of the Motown groups from uh, Diana Ross and the Supremes all the way to the Jackson Five, where there was that sense of, yo, we made it once we crossed over. Once we became popular music, aka pop music, that was the goal. Fast forward back to rap music, which was supposed to be the rebellious uh, you know, uh, anti-establishment music that rock and roll was, which was originated from rap music. I mean, excuse me, which originated uh, from black people. Um, you still had that same inspiration. Hence why you'll have a Rick Rubin talk about why he left rap music and became full-time into punk music. I only bring those things up because you have a man Ray who says, yo man, as long as I'm hoofing it and think about that analogy and think about that imagery, as long as I'm hoofing it, I don't care. You could change my name. So he was a willing participant as much as Dela, as much as Sloan mm -hmm. was in what they viewed as, well, I'm doing this for the right reasons. But as my mother would always tell me, the road to hell was paved with good intentions, which harkens to uh, my point about Man Ray changing his name. There was a gentleman by the name of Emmanuel Radnitsky, who was an American visual artist. And his uh, nom de plume, his nickname pseudonym was Man Ray. And then you have a gentleman um, who was a famous uh, actor 
by the name of Mantan Moreland, who was mm-hmm. also, um, you know, the inspiration behind the name change of Savion Glover's name. Uh, these are just some of the tidbits that uh, CJ had mentioned. If you purchase the director's cut, or if you just have an affinity for learning and going behind the scenes and seeing beneath the surface, because we're only going to touch upon maybe a 1% <laughs> of the iceberg here. Um, so I, I encourage you to do a deep dive. And I'll tell you right out, I hated this movie, but I can recognize the genius in this movie by the multiple layers. Wait. And the reason for my wait, wait, wait. Hold the on. reason for my Hold on. we haven't gotten to the popcorn yet, man. We, we, oh no, I, we haven't I gotten know. to the popcorn bus. Take that. Take that. So yeah. So th- there's the idea of like so so they become big, right? They become famous. And it's, and you know, you, you mentioned the part about um the part about Junebug, who's played by Paul mm-hmm. Mooney. And Delacroix questions like, well, peerless questions his father, you know, why aren't you mm-hmm. bigger? Why aren't you more well known? Right. And he tells him, and it's a very important line, tells him, I have too much dignity. Mm-hmm. I have too much integrity. And I can't say what they want me to say. Right. And this idea that even though this is where I am, right, these people feel me, I feel them, we're on the same level and we're both laughing at the same things right and i know we i know we get, we have some questions we're going to deal with the idea of like who's the joke really mm-hmm. on and i think that kind of plays out in some ways through this movie but along the way the consequences come up for for de la croix and for mantan um as well in the form of the mau maus right and the mau maus are kind of interesting because you, you gave the breakdown on on the, the people that play them and most def is great in this and, it, and it's interesting because like the Mau Mau's are, and they are, you know, they get their name from the Mau Mau's from Kenya and the Mau Mau revolution. And the, the thing that made the Mau Mau stand out is that in their freedom fighting to free Kenya from British rule, they were willing to um, commit military actions against not only British, British people and British establishments, but also against other Kenyans that they felt like were supporting too. And so when you understand the history of like that term, it makes perfect sense that through the course of the movie, the Mau Mau start to view Man Ray and Womack or Mantan and Sleeping Eat as the real enemy. So they're not even so much interested in attacking the idea of the network, whatever the network is called. Ironically, they're actually trying to get a job working there for themselves in the beginning as, a, as the house band and it doesn't work out, right? But they eventually set their sights on attacking Man Ray, and they hatched this really elaborate, violent plan to get to get even with him. And it's just it's interesting to me because, you know, I do think that Spike Lee is trying to make a little bit of a commentary about the idea of like revolutionary action and like the people that position themselves as revolutionaries because the Mau Maus are, you know, they're rappers. They have the hip hop thing. They too are drinking the bomb. The, the, the bomb malt liquor. So they're doing that also, right? They're very much like kind of in the same mix as the people that like and watch the show, right? The myth, the new millennium minstrel show. At one point, one of them even laughs while watching it because he's like, that's funny, right? DJ Scratch's so character. Like, yeah. So they're like kind of, it's, it's weird because they're not like definitely in opposition but they are, there is something honorable about them. And yet there's something unsophisticated about the way that they go about it. They're not even aware. Ironically, they're not even aware 
that when they capture Man Ray, he's already also reached their level of conclusion that this is a minstrel show and that I have no business participating in it. So they're actually capture and torture and kill someone who agrees with their ideology by the time they catch up with him, but they never really figure that out. Well, it's also, well, it's also funny too, because uh, in the beginning when Mostef, and you find out that Mostef's character, Big Black Africa, is related to Sloan, their brother and sister, and the thing he says to her is, oh. I need bail mm -hmm. money. Now, how stereotypical is that? And then to even add on to it, to add insult to injury, they go inside and she tells him, mm -hmm. you know, I'm going to call you Julius. Uh, I'm not going to call you Big Bad Africa. And he says, you know, look, they call uh, Muhammad Ali, Muhammad Ali. Mm -hmm. They don't call him Cassius Clay. It's an insult. And she already, right on cue, Eddie Murphy coming to America. Mm -hmm. Mama call him Cassius. I'm going to call him Cassius. So, you know, you have this uh, struggle with establishing a new identity, which is, you know, micro macro, same thing for Africans who were transported to this country as slaves. Then they went from uh, the N-word to Negroes, to colored, to black, to African-American, or switch it up, whatever you want. To now, anybody can identify as whatever you want. There's, I'm pretty sure there's plenty of individuals out in this world that identify as black, a la Rachel Dolashaw and, uh, What's the what's the dude's name who was running um CJ the the, the light skinned guy mustache young looking resembles uh, logic he was running um um some type of uh, splinter group in which he was advocating for oh. blacks and he's not black I can't think of this dude's oh, name oh no yeah no I don't remember that <laughs> no, no, yeah no because she wasn't alone and then there's a there's a female out in Germany who literally had surgery to I change her that. whole body. That one I did. Um, so I use these individuals as uh, samples to show just how much from 1492 to all the way to the present of 2024, how much the more things change, the more they stay the same. Yeah. And that's a, and that's a running theme through the, through the movie. And so, you know, you said, you said a couple of things that are really interesting there when you said the part about, it going from Africans to slaves to Negroes to blacks to African Americans. The idea of like even what people are called has changed so many times. And yet mm -hmm. no change really seems to give the full um acceptance of the humanity that that people want. You know, and, and in this movie, mm -hmm. it's really intentional how Sometimes the word Negro is used to describe things and people. Yes. Sometimes black is used to describe things and people. I don't think anybody says anything about African, but it's usually like black or Negro is like right there. Or African. Well, the Mau Maus. Yeah. The yeah, word yeah, Mau yeah, Mau. yeah. Or yes, good point. Or like the idea of like an African-American. So there's a couple. So, mm -hmm. so I think we I think we've covered like a lot of the kind of the cultural parts of the movie. So let's jump into the let's just jump, let's jump into some of the cake here. I got um just two, like I said, man, it's like a, a thousand things, man. But I'm going to say three things that I just really liked. Um, the first one is the scene where they meet with the um, the, the media consultant, Mirna Goldfarb, mm. right? And this is right after the show comes out. And the show is popular. And she comes in to tell them how they need to protect themselves. And she says, like, you know, make sure that you invoke the spirit of Dr. King and make sure that you wear kente cloth and make sure that you have black people working on the show. And then she says, 
you know, and this show can't be racist because it's created by a black person. And Jada Pinkett, without missing a, be- a, 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 um, a, a beat, says in talking about Peerless, well, he's not black, he's a Negro. And I always think this is such a great scene because what it's trying to get across, at least from my interpretation, is this idea that being black protects you from the criticism of doing mm. and saying things that are detrimental for black people. As if as if an idea, as if by you being black somehow you're immune to the damage and harm that you can cause others, which is absolutely not the case. But it's just really interesting like how they do that in that scene. And I think it's just a great scene. I love how it plays out. And I like the resistance that both Pierre and Sloan have to her. And then the fact that Sloan also starts to identify, you know, Pierre is also kind of being on that pathway too of thinking. It's just a great scene. To becoming a gold star. To becoming gold, right. To to actually aligning more so mm-hmm. with them. Right. Um shout out to Dina Perlman, who played uh Myrna Goldfarb. Yes. Yes. So that's like one of um that's one of my favorite scenes there. Um I love all the stuff with Paul Mooney. I just think he's great. The mm. my, the joke when he says that his favorite black television show is Cops. That's like <laughs> that's a crazy that's a crazy crazy joke which you get it if you get it. You know what I mean? Like and you get what he's saying and all of his all of his humor mm. is working on two levels the whole time. So I love that. The last thing I'm going to say, um, and we talked about it a little bit before, Tommy Davidson is amazing in this movie. The scene where he essentially says, this is too much for me and I'm leaving this. And he goes to mm-hmm. confront Man Ray and he tries to get him to leave too. But by that time, you know, yeah. his mind is, is gone on it. But the way that he talks to him about the idea of like, we're calling this the new millennium minstrel show, but it's really the same thing. And it's the same exploitation. Mm. And the only difference is now we are actively engaging in it because we want to, not because we have to, but because we want to. And he goes through so many emotions in that scene. He's funny. He's like a brotherly confrontation. And then at the end where he does this thing where he pulls his his hand over his face Mm. and then he pretends to be the slave and he goes through all those kind of yes sir, master kind of things and walks away. Amazing scene, very powerful, um, and I loved it. I loved those scenes. Yeah, the mannerisms and the uh, gestures that he makes really drives home the point of now they are in servitude. They are the new version of slaves. Definitely hits home. Um, Shout out to the uh, Jim Crow Museum with all of the uh, um, African, uh, the black uh, trinkets. I'm not even quite sure of how to describe the... uh, those just uh, those disturbing uh, figurines yeah. from from yeah the I don't know how you would but definitely shout out to the Jim Crow Museum of Racist Imagery out in uh, Big Rapids, uh, Michigan. Uh, definitely uh, one of the largest, if not the largest, of uh, uh, racist black uh, late nineteenth eighteenth uh, century memorabilia. Mm-hmm. Um, that that also plays a prominent role. Um, so when you see the uh, what do they call the piece, uh, CJ? Where the monkey? Was, oh, the jolly, I mean, uh, yeah, the, um, jo- the jolly, the jolly word bank, yeah, yeah, that, that's yeah, a, that's yeah. which is was. which is a terrifying yeah. thing, and to know that that's a yeah. real thing that really exists, not a prop that they made for the movie. Mm-hmm. No, that's no, 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 no. that's horrific, man. Well, just the fact that he starts he he questions whether or not he's hallucinating or not when it's 
almost automated and it's doing it on its own. But mm-hmm. simultaneously, that's when the show is starting to become more and more prominent. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I think uh, some of the things that I happen to like about that, we touched upon the cast. Um, I don't know if it's a like or a dislike, but the haunting imagery, it leaves a, a very uh, strong impression upon you. It's mm-hmm. embedded. Um, and then also, I, I definitely got to give a shout out to the historical aspect. Um, the way that they're able to explain exactly, you know, you burn the cork. Mm. Um, yes. You mm-hmm. make sure you apply cocoa butter to your face mm-hmm. and your hands so it doesn't um, disturb or even uh, cause burns to your skin. Mm-hmm. Uh, just that whole process. And then it shows the repetition and the initial, the initial part of it starts off with almost like an education but then it becomes mundane and then it becomes uh, haunting and disturbing. Mm-hmm. And then it becomes almost like uh, a thing of itself. Um, so definitely that stood out for me. Those are my three likes. Yeah, absolutely, man. That w- Those are great scenes. And I also like how even the application of the, the blackface mm-hmm. in the beginning, they're okay with it. They're like, yeah, I'm going to do this. I'm yeah. getting paid. By the end, it's like each one is cutting their face. For both yeah. of them, because they it, they realize that a part of their soul was being destroyed through this process. So yeah, definitely. No, so that definitely. that's some of the cake there. Um, you mentioned, you know, it's interesting. You mentioned the figurines. That's kind of like in the things that I didn't like, but not because yeah, there's something wrong, but just it's 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 hard to see that level of detail being put into the creation of things that are meant to degrade you as a person. And the idea that a museum like that, like you said, a museum can exist where so many of those pieces that are all throughout this movie exist because they were actually made to make black people look as ignorant and inhuman as possible is the things themselves are painful. And to watch like you know it starts off with like one thing and then by the end you know de la croix sitting in an office of all of these things so they've like become a personality in and of itself and they are doing something there's something they're telling you something about his mental state but as the viewer mm-hmm. when you're watching it it's just haunting to look at because you know like that's the real things that like exist to make you feel like less than a person and to make someone else feel like you're less than a person so that that's like you know that wasn't something i didn't i Maybe it's not even fair to say I don't like it, but um, it was definitely a thing. And then the only other thing I'll say is um, I just wish there was more Paul Mooney in it. Mm. I just I just would have loved to see more mm. Paul Mooney in the movie, and um, he was too fast in it. I would have loved to see him talk to Pierre about the show once it came out. I'm sure that would have been um, as as damning as his mother's commentary was, but you know mm. the movie didn't give it to us, so that's it. Uh, I'm definitely going to piggyback off CJ's dislike with the imagery. Um, blackface itself is degrading. Um, there's no excuse for it. It's not It's not permissible in my world at any point in time. There's no okay for it, just like the N-word. I don't use it. I don't, I don't condone it. So whether it be, and I like the songs, Mr. Enter by Mostef mm-hmm. on Black on Both Sides and um, yeah. Uh, even on a tribe called Quest, uh, where where Q-Tip even talks about embracing it as a term of endearment, sucker enter. Um, I like the songs, but and I even like the message behind it. I just don't like the word. Um, 
but nonetheless, just that imagery of, uh, like CJ pointed out, the the haunting image of those figurines mm-hmm. in all of their different depictions of black people, the exaggerated, you know, hyperbole doesn't even suit it. It's just grotesque. Uh, that's not what our hair looks like. That's not what our lips look like. Some of us don't like watermelons. In fact, I wouldn't even touch a watermelon for like the first 30 years of my life because of that, because of the racist cartoons of, uh, um, uh, Bugs Bunny Mm -hmm. and, uh, um, uh, all the Looney Tunes characters, like just the way that they had black people, whether it be, um, getting shot with a shotgun and then all of a sudden their hair was all like sticking out Mm -hmm. big lips and black face, um, ridiculous, uh, birth of a nation trash um all of the individuals who i understand who were black at that time who had to participate in those things whether it be you know a man ray or uh uh bill robinson or um the depictions of even the women where they could only be maids or some type of motherly figure a la hattie mcdaniels um you name it there's countless individuals uh, even outside of movie itself and television itself, even to uh, music. So, you know, I don't want, I don't want it to be misconstrued that I am condemning them. I understand that these are the things that you had to do with the opportunities you were given to break way, so that we are standing on their shoulders. Much respect, much love, much uh, recognition to them for all of their hardships that they had to endure, so that future generations could see exactly what we are. Got it. Got it. Okay. So we talked about the cake. We talked about the hate. Um, I got a couple questions though for you. So just a couple things like kind of in, in movie, outside of movie questions. Um, so here's an in movie question for you. After this is all done, what do you think happens to one sixteenth black Sloan and Dunwitty? Well, search goes on to make uh, zebra head, um, uh, get some publishing okay. from Nas and then uh, he and uh, Minister Pete Nice get back together. Uh, for those that don't know, MC Search is the actor, former rapper and all those things. But uh, on the real though, I think um, I think he goes to some type of conditioning camp and he gets to go back to you know his parents or whatever have you. Um, he's forced back, but eventually he makes his way to acclimate himself to those social and cultural norms and mores. Okay. Uh, Dinwiddie, I think uh, that dude, man, he's lost. He just goes up the uh, the chain. Because when he mentions 24, the first thing I'm thinking of is Willie Mays, is Ricky Henderson, is Ken Griffey Jr. And they don't show you initially the pictures. So, you know, not all of us follow sports. So for him to say that he's more black than whomever just shows you the level mm-hmm. of ignorance. Um, and Sloan. Who else did you mention? And Sloan. Who? That John? And Sloan. Oh, man, she's tormented forever, fam. She, 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 leaves, the, she leaves New York. And uh, she's haunted by all the death that uh, surrounded her by her poor choices. Um, and she can't it. escape it. Okay. All right. Here's um, a question that's kind of a little bit outside of the movie. But, you know, this comes out in 2000. And I can't help but I can't help but think about things that came after it. And one of the, big, one of the big things yeah. is uh, the Chappelle show, right? And, you know, every Oh, yeah. I think it did. And Dave everybody knows, this. like, you know, Dave Chappelle had the thing where he had the show on Comedy Central and he left and it made me wonder, mm-hmm. yo, here's my question. Was Dave Chappelle the real life version of Womack? 
I think uh, he is the embodiment of all of the characters in here to lesser and greater degrees. Um, remember, he left not because he was crazy, and that's the first thing they do to dismiss you is to label mm-hmm. you as crazy. Um, this guy walked away from millions and millions of dollars. Um, so you got to understand it was done deliberately. And as he talked about, you know, they called Mariah Carey crazy. They called uh, Martin Lawrence crazy. But you got to be of some type of fortitude, as he talks about, um, you know, to to make it to that type mm-hmm. of level of stardom, if you will. Um, so what is it about those people? Maybe it's the environment that they're mm-hmm. in that is sickening. So the environment in this movie was very mm-hmm. toxic. Absolutely. Um, you know, he talks about, uh, Del Rates even pointed out, his intention was to get fired and to point out the hypocrisy, to do what he wanted to do. Um, he questions his father. Why didn't you make it that far? And his father said, basically, I'm too black. I'm too proud. I'm too dignified. I'm too, uh, too full of self-respect, even though he's getting drunk and his father, he has to be carried by his son and his lady. Um, and he's wearing a bright mm-hmm. orange suit. So, I mean, like, think about the contradictions in that. Um, but yeah, man, I think uh, Dave is, and that's just a, a, a very smidgen of what I wanted to get into. But I think Dave, throughout this, is very present, very omnipresent throughout this movie. Got it. Um, all right, last one. Kind of maybe it's simple, maybe, maybe simple, maybe not. But what would you say are your five, what's your five favorite Spike Lee movies, man? We talked a little bit about Spike in the beginning and the impact that he's had on the world of movie making. What's your five favorite Spike Lee movies? Easily. Honorable mention to Jungle Fever and and, uh, and uh, Mr. Wesley Snipes. Um, but then I'm going in okay. uh, least to greatest. Number five, I got Mo' Better Blues. Again, really Wesley good. Snipes, Denzel. Do the Right Thing. Classic. Number four. Um, number three, Inside Man. Uh Definitely, definitely a joint that uh, I was very pleasantly pleased when I watched this in the theater. Number two, he got Game, uh, Retro 13s, um, and a big Ray Allen fan. That's my dude, man. And um, last but not least, El Haj Malik Shabazz, a.k.a. Malcolm Little, a.k.a. Detroit Red, also known as Malcolm X. There it is. Good picks. It's five good ones. And you, sir? Um, And you, sir? I'm going to give you... um, Number five, Inside Man, which I loved also. Okay. Um, number four, She Hate Me. I always, I always like that. Mm. I think that's okay. that's got some really deep ideas about men and women and, and sex and how that works. Um, right. Number three, Twenty Fifth Hour. I've always liked the Twenty Fifth Hour mm. with Ed okay. with Ed Norton. Very, very good, yeah, good yeah, movie. Yeah. I like Ed Norton. Um, yeah. Number two, He Got Game. Love the story. Right. Is you know it's, it's like almost prime Denzel. So it's going to be great. And then number one yeah. is actually what we're talking about right now. Bamboozle. This is my, of course, my, is. <laughs> this is my, my favorite, <laughs> of course is. my favorite Spike Lee joint, man. So that's my questions. Um, you got any questions for me before we go to our popcorn? Oh yeah, most definitely. Uh, first one is Spike Lee guilty of the very thing that he's critiquing. <sighs> you know, it's funny, man, up until, up until um, Black Klansman, I would mm-hmm. have, I would have unequivocally said no. I don't think that he's, I don't think that he's creating um, something like the New Millennium Minstrel Show. I definitely don't think he's doing that. I think that it's, it's interesting the critique of things like 
black Klansmen. And when people say, you know, Spike Lee directed commercials for like the NYPD, right? And like, what does that mean mm-hmm. for like some of the things that he puts into the movies and some of the ways he portrays things? I don't know. I, I would say to be quick, I would say, no, I don't think he's guilty of it. But I think that it's a relevant question to ask if you do a deep dive into everything he's produced. I dig it, man. I dig it. Um, the next question for you is, are minstrel shows necessary? See, this is the thing, man. You know, like there's like an expression, you can't, ex- you can't, um, you can't really understand the sweet or you can't appreciate the sweet without the bitter, right? Mm-hmm. The thing about the the something like this, like the idea of a minstrel show and about many of the things we see in real life all the time, they do mm-hmm. this job of kind of separating your, I would say, your skin folk from your kin folk, right? Because mm-hmm. there's things that are produced, there's things that, that we as Black people produce, right, that are detrimental. They are negative. They are offensive. They are outlandish. But you don't really know who thinks that until the thing itself is produced. Then you mm. get to see who's really aligned with you and your values and who's not. If that thing didn't exist, you wouldn't know. And you would you might assume incorrectly that everybody thought the same way you do. So you need this, you need these forms of propaganda to help you to see the reality of where you are and the reality of where of who's around you. So in that sense, I think there is a necessity to it. It should just never become the majority. Interesting choice of words, propaganda, I dig it. Um, will they ever be done away with, minstrel shows, that is? No, no, it's not, man. Because the thing is, man, like this movie, so this like when this movie came out, right, the idea was this was going to be so crazy that even watching it, it didn't seem like you could ever see something like that. Well, now you see stuff on television. You don't see anybody with blackface yet, but you see a lot of things that are like the characters of blackface Mm -hmm. without stuff on it. Right. So that's not going away because it's too profitable Mm -hmm. and it's too important for black people to be seen in a negative light. And as long as those two, those things are profitable and important, it's not going away. I can appreciate that. Uh, my last question: What does it mean to be black, and who defines what that definition is? Man, so this is the this is the joint right here. So I'm I'm gonna just say I I am not qualified to answer that question. Mm-hmm. However, however, um, there's a book that I read years ago, and I do want to make this reference. So the book is called The Meaning of Blackness, and, it, and it's by um, an author named I M Nur, probably not the person's you know born given name, sure. maybe so. Right, right. If you're out there listening, maybe it is. But years ago, I read this, and there's a scene in in the movie where um, Dunwoody asked that question, "What is black anyway?" Mm-hmm. Right. And as soon as he said it, it reminded me of this part in his book, which I got the book here, and I'm actually going to read it because whenever. I'm thought I, I, I'm questioned about like the idea of what is blackness, what is what is black, what is blackness. This is what I would go back to, and I'm just gonna just you know read it for a second. Yeah. So, blackness is the highest, most complete quality of anything in creation. It is the source and eventual destination, the departure point 
and terminal point of all things. Blackness is the perfection of how all things manifest in nature, and it is the most fundamental design of perfection demonstrated throughout creation. Because it underlines, underlies the entire universe, blackness likely characterizes the creator's nature or possibly their divine will. Mm. That is something that has always um, been my go, but my go-to. And as I said from the beginning, I think the idea and concept of blackness is too big for me to figure oh, out and yeah. find at the stage. But when I read that, I like how that sounds and that works for me. So that's what I'm rocking with. Well, I dig it, man. That's tight right there. Thank you. Thank you, sir. All right. So let's uh let's jump into the popcorn boxes here, man. Uh I'm not burying the lead at all. I'm giving this five boxes of popcorn. <laughs> this is uh this is this is delicious. And it's good for you too, like like watermelon. So I've, <laughs> Surprise, I'm, I'm, I'm loving it. Surprisingly, huh, man? All right. Not, not even, not even a surprise. <laughs> nah, you know what? Even though I hated this movie, I can definitely appreciate its genius, uh, its attempt at cha- uh, taking on such a challenging topic. I'm also running with five boxes, classic. There it is. Yep. All right. So, um, just any like final thoughts? Um, you know, I would just say that one of the things that I think is is a really um, great part about this movie and i'm going to compare it to hollywood shuffle for a second in hollywood shuffle the characters are trying to get the acclaim and they're wrestling with what happens if i take these roles that portray me or my people negatively to get there but you never really see what happens if you actually do it and it actually works out right this movie shows you if i do play the coon then I can get rich, but then what happens to me afterwards? And I think the the main one of the one of the themes running through this movie is the idea of corruption and how corruption is contagious because as the show becomes successful, it corrupts everybody that's close to it. It corrupts Delacroix, it corrupts Sloan, it corrupts Man Ray, it corrupts Womack, and then they're only saved by the ability for them to get away from it. So Womack is the one who, because he gets away, he becomes less corrupted. It's not by accident that he looks like a Black Panther in the scene when he's leaving, mm-hmm. because he's trying to get away from that corruption. Delacroix doesn't, so it kills him. Man Ray doesn't, so it kills him. Sloane doesn't, so she becomes a killer. Sloane's brother becomes a killer and then is killed. There's so much collateral damage and destruction, but it's to only the Black characters. Because when you sell, when, when you don't tap into and maintain and, and align yourself with the knowledge of self that you have, that's the beginning of the corruption. And once that corruption happens and it becomes contagious, it's always going to be a terminal outcome. And that's what I think you see happen to the characters here. So that's what I would say is like the theme sort of running underneath the joint. Nah, that, that was right there, that breakdown of corruption. Uh I definitely can rock with that, man. Definitely. Um, I'm not necessarily sure if I have a final thought, um, but I think I can summarize what I'm feeling right now as far as um, the emotions that are stirring in me, and that would be uh, education. Um, The movie for me symbolizes how the lack thereof or the pursuit of it or the acquisition of it, if you will, um, helps to drive these individuals not only um, throughout their day-to-day, but their motivations. 
Um, you have Dela, who is an individual who um, is the embodiment of so-called college-educated, privileged man of um, multiple talents, you know, or what W.E.B. Du Bois would call the the, the popular tenth percent. Talented um, tenth. Yeah, talented talent. tenth. Sorry, yeah, the talented tenth. I think I was thinking of the proletariat, and hearing uh, Fred Hampton's voice. Um, but um, my point in referencing that is, um, you know, it's elitism. You know, the, here you have these individuals who are almost snobbish looking down upon the masses. Uh, then you have the individuals of that so-called disdain uh, embodied by Womack and Man Ray. And we've already broken down how their names originate from real life individuals who were part of the so-called downtrodden and, well, the proletariat, um, those without resources. Uh, and then you have those in the um, the, the the budding middle class, a la Sloan, who's trying mm-hmm. to break the chains and make her way up. But then she has to deal with sexism and that and she gives a great speech about how, you know, the perception of her sleeping to the top and not the fact that she's an intelligent, articulate, um, you know, enlightening individual who has a, a deep seated passion and fervor for this uh, this mainstream. Um, this 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 genre of TV, um, and then you have uh, those who, who are street knowledge, if you will, uh, embodied by Paul Mooney, his father, uh, Junebug, and even uh, Honeycut to a sense when he is uh, auditioning. Um, and then you have the stereotypes where you know you have a, a Jimi Hendrix or you have a, a, a Bootsy Collins or you have a Slash. You know what? You play guitar. Well, that's nothing more than Howlin' Jack. That's nothing more than Little Richard. That's nothing more than uh, their predecessors, um, you know, Jack Johnson. Um, You know, these individuals who allegedly sold their soul to the devil, if you will, because they didn't listen to church music and they were into secular music. Well, that is about education. Um, So this this theme of uh, being enlightened um, and illuminating, um, and no, we're not with the Illuminati. Um, of bringing you know attention in to the to the masses, um, and that in itself is also throughout our our community. Where if you make a little bit of money, you get a little bit of fame. Think about the terms: a little bit. You made a little bit of money. You get a little bit of fame, but supposedly you have to sell your soul in order to do that. And I think there's a plethora of individuals who are talented enough to know that. No, I don't have to compromise my belief. Hence, why I asked CJ. You know, hey. Are the minstrel shows something that are just ingrained mm-hmm. throughout our culture? Is it this uh, so-called uh, crab in a barrel? Which, if you actually watch crabs, they don't do that. They don't pull each other down. And just like uh, the phrase, a spade is a spade, that's not true either. Um, that's a very uh, misconception. Uh, it's a very racist term. And these things are embodied in that movie. Um, so the more we become educated, the more that we bring awareness, like, like this movie, even though I have such a a deep-seated disdain for it, I know that it's a necessary evil. And with that being said, I'm looking to cleanse myself uh, <laughs> almost like El-Haj Malik, Dabaj, uh, El- El-Haj Malik Shabazz did when he uh, made his pilgrimage to Mecca. And so with that being said, CJ, why don't you let the, the masses know what we're going to be up with? Yeah, so yeah, so we're closing out our uh, Black Black uh, History, or we got Blackity Black History Month movie movie uh, movie reviews with Spike Lee's Malcolm X. So we actually have not done any Spike Lee movies till this one, and now we're going to do a two for one 
back to back weeks. Doubling down. Double doubling down back to back weeks. We'll be doing that. Um, so yeah, so please tune in next week. We'll be talking about that movie as well. Um, I'm sure we're gonna have a lot of really deep thoughts about that one. Uh, once again, the Sticky Floors podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts. We are on Apple Podcasts, we are on Spotify, we are now on YouTube as well. So please like, subscribe, comment, and share. Um, all those things help us to do a better. Peace.